This is a Crib Room podcast. Bringing you industry news, views and happenings. Another Crib Room podcast from the workshop at Worthy Parts and Managing Director Michael Worthington with us. Michael, it's been about, well, nearly 12 months since the Mining Legends project as we know it. Well, got into action and we celebrated at the Calgary Boulder Racing Club. Let's go back, though, to the start of the project for Mining Legends. Uh, let's first of all find out why the attraction was with the R2900G. Yeah, so we chose the 2900G more to do with our confidence in knowing what parts or what services we could attract, I suppose, from the people that we know. Uh, If I went with any other machine, I might not have had the network that I thought that I would have had with the 2900G loader. So yeah, that was definitely why we chose that machine. I knew that they were a pretty hot property and I knew I could probably secure one, especially after I had a conversation with a local mining company in Northern Star and, and I knew that I had their support with a bit of a quirky idea. So that's why we went with that loader and obviously we see these things come through our yard all the time. The 2900 was designed by Elphinstone Group. Uh, you got the opportunity to go and meet with Dale and that's where our podcast goes today. It must have been amazing to sit with one guy who no doubt you hold as a huge mentor in the industry. He was brilliant. We we reached out to him and we weren't too sure whether we'd get a response because uh, he is a bit of a fictitious character in our mind over here in WA. Uh, we see his name all over the machines that we're used to working on. Um, but yeah, I, I reached out. I'd actually seen him in Vegas in 2016. I never spoke to him, but I grabbed a business card at the time and it had Dale's details on it. So I kept it and three years later I sent him an email and much to my surprise he, he wrote back within a couple of days and yeah it was brilliant and then going to see the facility down in Tasmania as well that was all part of of going to to record a little bit with him which was vision and also audio and we'll get to hear the audio as part of this podcast but it it must have been pretty surreal because I suppose to compare apples with apples the Elphinstone group have been involved in cat through Willie Adams and and more over the years and just seeing their facilities over there in Tasmania is huge I was I was really blown away by Tasmania I've, I've never been to Tasmania before but um, yeah, it, it did spin me out a little bit that they've kept that factory over there in Tasmania. I know that Cat took it over and then Cat had moved offshore again and then that was where Elphinstone's come back in to um, basically buy that factory back to keep manufacturing in Tasmania. And, and you'll listen to it in the podcast as to why that is a bit of a pro and why there is a bit of a con to it. But yeah, it's definitely worked in well for them. We must point out that this interview was recorded across September and October 2019. Michael, where do we start off with the interview with Dale? Dale starts off by telling us a bit about his family history, a bit more on his future dreams and the early days of Elphinstones, and this includes the early days about Agnew Mining and why it was best to shake hands with the Caterpillar dealers and what he also learnt from the Caterpillar dealers to be more efficient. He also mentions the deal about buying the Elphinstone brand back when they took the business back overseas. This is a Crib Room podcast. Welcome, Dale. Let's start where it all began with you. So you grew up on a farm. Let's start there. Well, I grew up on a dairy farm at High Clare. It's about 20 kilometres inland from here. It was a mixed dairy farm, so we cropped, and my father had contracting equipment, so we had a dozer and a tractor and things. So we grew up working on equipment and doing things on the farm. I think my father gave us a, a hell of a grounding, but I left school when I was 14. I only went to an area school to year nine. Um, so, you know, a lot of the education I got was either growing up in a business environment with my father or 
the School of Hard Knocks along the road. And I started an apprenticeship in 1966 um, and worked for William Adams, uh, the cat dealer. Um, and it, it's ironic that we got to buy the cat dealer in 1987, so probably 20 years later, uh, which is, I suppose, I once I started to work for William Adams and work on cat equipment, I had a dream of owning a cat dealership. Never did I dream I'd get the opportunity to own the cat dealership where I lived. You had a travel bug. How did that go? So I worked with uh, William Adams for quite a period and I did what a lot of Aussies do. Um, I went walkabout overseas and visited a lot of cat facilities uh, in 1973, 74. Uh, worked for Feeding Tractor for a year up in uh, British Columbia in Canada. Worked mainly in the forest industry up there, a little bit in the mining. But when I come back, I was, uh, I don't know, I had a, an itch to do something for myself. When did you start modifying machines? You know, I went, I, you know, first just at a, an old Dodge Ute that I used to use for field service and I worked at Renison. I did a project up for gunpowder copper in Queensland and modified some loaders to go underground there. Um, but, you know, for the first year or two, I just worked for myself and then got a couple of extra people together, got a shop. You know, I started work on my father's farm and if you looked at where we modified four 769s to go underground, you wouldn't believe it could be done in the shop. So we bought second-hand 769Bs and yeah. cut them up to go underground. And then, of course, that led us to buying partial 769Ds new from Caterpillar and then building them up from just a chassis and a powertrain um, to what we wanted. In 1975, we started to modify cat equipment to go underground. And when I say modified, you know, we converted wheel loaders to side seating and we lowered trucks and did all sorts of things. But we also bought partial machines from Caterpillar and, and built man lifts and bar and down machines and personnel carriers and explosives handlers and all sorts of support vehicles. When did you build your first machine? I think about 1983, we built probably our first machine we built from the ground up, which was a... Uh, a 14-tonne truck that we built for Agnew Mining uh, in Leinster. And it was really the first time that we moved out of Tasmania. Before that, we really had King Island, Cheolite and Renison were two customers that supported us. And if we, want to, if we were going to put another machine from another customer in our, in our shop, we actually used to go and ask Renison and King Island before we did it. But we had a couple of other customers here, uh, Aberfoyle Resources, but, you know, one day, you know, you think you're very comfortable running with just two nice customers and, and you work along and all of a sudden King Island Cheerlite got into trouble and disappeared. And it took 50% of our workload. And we'd always been approached by uh, mining companies around Australia to do work for them and we'd always turned it down because we had enough work for what we were doing. So when that happened, we decided that we would take on some work for uh, interstate and so our first contract was with Agnew Mining um, for those little trucks, and they were a pretty special truck. Um, they needed to be perfectly balanced in the cage, unladen and laden, because they did the development work on all of the, the plats and the tunnel development out from the, from the shaft. Um, and then later they had to be converted into 17-tonne trucks. It was a complex design, but we won the contract for four of them. And that really opened, I suppose, a... a a broader Australian market for us. You know, back then we used to deal direct with customers. 
And, you know, gradually, as time went on, we started to build, you know, we, we, we basically built the first 2,600 and sold that to Agnew. And then we started from the ground up with a tender down at um, Aberfour Resources or at uh, Kew River. Um, they come to us with a spec um, to build a machine that was the size of a 913. So really a machine that would work in a 3 by 3 tunnel but would carry 15 tonne. And I suppose we say in our lifetime we've done a lot of things because we didn't know we couldn't. So we had a crack at designing a machine that was really a, a 913 size machine that was about a 6 tonne machine to see if we could get it to carry 15 tonne. And in the finish we said we couldn't. The best we could do was 10 tonne. I remember Grant Brock at the time said, well, that'll do, 10 to that. And little did we know, and we didn't really look at competition and what the competition were doing. We were focused on what we were doing. So we bid the machine, and little did we know, everybody else bid a 913 side machine that carried six tonne. So out of that come the R1500. And really that machine, you know, we, we designed and built and delivered that machine in seven months. Another thing that we did because we didn't know we couldn't, and when, when we went to Caterpillar to buy the components from that, I remember the cat guys saying, you're mad, this is not doable. And we had a, a delivery penalty on that of 5,000 bucks a week for every week we were over six months delivering it. And I remember saying to Grant Brock, you're not going to stick us with the four weeks late we are. Uh, we'd work day and night for six months. And he said, no, a deal's a deal. And, and I've always, you know, you learn lessons from people like Grant or other people at Renison that, you know, you have to honour your commitments. And I think that was a valuable lesson for us. But that 1500 went to work and never come back. And of course, you know, the rest you could say is probably history because, you know, the 1500 turned into a 2800. And, you know, then they be there was next generation machines and articulated trucks. And, and really the, the, the market just grew. They were very, very productive machines. And really the the reason for that is we designed the machine with our Caterpillar knowledge, so with wheel loader hydraulics, which are very fast. And, you know, the machine was also quite quick underground, but, you know, most operators that run a 1500 would say for the first day, it's too fast, you can't control it. And every day after that, they wouldn't run anybody else's because they were too slow. But that machine was probably 40 or 50% more productive than other machines. In fact, you know, I was talking to one of our guys in or one of our dealer customers, Toramont, in Canada this morning, and, and they created us with really doubling the productivity of an underground loader. Let's go into your relationship with Caterpillar. Explain some more about that for us. We'd always had a very close association with Caterpillar, not only because I worked for the, the dealer and got to know Caterpillar, but we, we were a big customer of Caterpillar's buying parts or partial machines or engines and transmissions. So we learned in probably 1992, 93 that Caterpillar was thinking about getting into the underground business. Their big customers globally saw fleets of Caterpillar trucks parked up on the surface when an open-cut mine went underground from the bottom of the pit. And, of course, a fleet of our equipment went to work underground. So Caterpillar's large customers were encouraging Caterpillar to get into business. And, you know, if Caterpillar had got into business without us, we sell all of our products through the Cat dealers and we buy all of our components from Caterpillar. 
So if Caterpillar get into the business, we're almost a competitor. And that's something we always vow will never be, is a competitor to Caterpillar. So we decided it was best to shake hands with them because we back then had about 250 people working here. We were concerned about their futures and if Caterpillar had started to build LHDs in the US, uh, we really wouldn't have had a business and those people would have been out of work. So in 95, we formed a joint venture with Caterpillar globally and they had an option to buy the balance of the business in 2000 and it was a very good business so they bought the business. So then Caterpillar run the business for uh, 16 years um, and decided in, well, probably there was discussions before that about them relocating from Bernie and we always managed to convince Caterpillar that this was the best place to do what they, they were doing. But, you know, in Bernie, Caterpillar got up to 850 employees and built 500 machines a year. And we got some very, very good lessons out of that, we used to build about 250 machines a year, and you know, the assembly process of those, we, we worked two 10-hour shifts and a shift on Saturday. Caterpillar on the same footprint built 500 machines a year in one shift a five-day week. Now that's a four-fold improvement, and we thought we were very efficient. So we've learnt a lot from Caterpillar over the years of, of efficient manufacturing processes, and those skills Caterpillar imparted to the, to the people in Burnie and on the northwest coast um, worked, I mean, we always worked before and after Caterpillar with the supply chain to increase their efficiency. So when Caterpillar finally made a decision in 2016 to relocate to Thailand, um, it left about 370 people in Burnie unemployed or, or that were going to be made redundant. So we talked to Caterpillar in late 2015 uh, to Ed Rapp, and Ed's a guy I have enormous respect for in Caterpillar, and talked about buying our Elphinstone brand back. And, and Caterpillar agreed to that because they'd since rebranded in about 2004, I think, rebranded the Elphinstone product Caterpillar, um, which was inevitable. But by this time, Caterpillar had decided the Elphinstone brand was not something that was was a value to them. So we negotiated a deal with Cat to buy back our Elphinstone brand, but also to buy back the intellectual property for all of the support vehicles. So not trucks and loaders, but all those early explosives handling units, personnel carriers, manhandlers, scissor lifts, etc. that we built. Caterpillar never built those. In fact, before we sold to Caterpillar, we'd really pretty much stopped building those. Not because there wasn't a need for them, but we got so busy building trucks and loaders that we just stopped building support vehicles. So we suggested to Caterpillar that if we took that IP back and built support vehicles, we could cover a greater portion of the market. It provides our dealers with a bigger spread of equipment. So Caterpillar today have got trucks and loaders. Now we're starting to provide dealers with all of those support vehicles. The reason for us, I suppose, doing this was there was 370 people here, highly trained people by Caterpillar. There's a supply chain that had been built up over 40 years. And if we'd have let that die, um, a lot of people and families wouldn't have had a livelihood. So what did you do? So we embarked upon, and we had about, I suppose, 2016, about 50 employees working in 
Southern Prospect and Hallmax. So we we were manufacturing Hallmax trucks and Railmax rail machines. We were doing that already, and we started that in 2008. And because we knew at some point Caterpillar would probably relocate from here, we wanted to be prepared. You know, if Caterpillar never relocated, well, then we were utilising the supply chain and building more product and providing more jobs and employment here. But when Caterpillar decided to move, we merged a number of businesses together. So our Rail Max business, our Hallmax business, and the new business that we were starting. And we also, uh, back then, I mean, we'd bid a military contract, Land 400, which we weren't successful with. We also had the Tasmanian government approaches about building uh, metro buses, which is very, very left field for us. But it was at a time when we needed to keep the supply chain together and keep as many employees or hire as many employees back and keep the nucleus of the workforce together. So we took on a contract to build 100 buses, 100 metro buses for the Tasmanian government. And we're at about bus 50 right now. So we're about halfway through that. We also, in 2013, Orica approached us about developing the next generation of their explosive truck. They call them a mobile manufacturing unit. And we spent, um, I think, about three years developing that unit. And we've developed a unit that's 40% more productive than their old truck. So we manufacture those and we have a contract with Orica to build 100 of those trucks. And we're probably at about mm, so truck 37, 38 at the minute. So we build a, a bus every seven days. We build an Orica truck every seven days. Um, they're all stainless. So we, we've separated and quarantined a facility to build those in so we get high quality. Um, and then all our carbon steel products are built at Ormsby Street. When we took that facility back from Caterpillar, we spent about $10 million upgrading that facility and modernising it. And that facility is designed to build economical quantities of one in any order. So we can have on the assembly line there seven different machines and they move seven times in the assembly process. So they index the line and that really is a massive logistical exercise to have the right parts at the right place at the right time. But the people at Caterpillar left behind here have been instrumental in pulling all this together. Mine Expo is a huge event. What did that prove to you about the importance of your reputation? It was about 16 years um, last year, no, year before last, when we were at Mine Expo. So we had one of our first products at Mine Expo. And I thought that, you know, we'd have been long forgotten about. And, and I spent the whole time of Mine Expo on the stand talking to people that I knew 20 years ago that were still in the industry. You know, people that work in this industry tend to stay in it. And it's not uncommon with other industries, but the underground mining industry, people make a lifetime career of underground mining. And across the world, they stay, they move around the world, believe it or not. And, you know, your reputation moves with those. But I've said to Kelly and Adam, you know, a, a reputation's extremely valuable because if it'll stay and stick around for 16 years when you're not in the business, then that's a really, really valuable thing for us, you know, as we get back into this business going forward. Well, I heard that recently. It takes 20 years to build a reputation and one day to destroy it. Yeah, one deal. One deal. <laughs> yep. 
So you've always got to be mindful of that and your people have got to be mindful that a reputation is everything. I, I've got a, an old customer up in uh, Horsham who once said to me, one of the, and he's an older guy than me by a long way, and this is back maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, he said to me, son, what are the three most important things in business? And after I'd thought about it for a long time and sort of give him, he, he said, no, I said, well, what are they? And he said, it's integrity, integrity and integrity. That's all that matters in business. And I absolutely agree that, that you've got to keep your word at all cost. And, you know, it's cost us a lot of money over the years to keep our word. You know, sometimes you make dumb decisions, but you decide you're going to do something. Well, then you have to honour those commitments. And it doesn't matter how much it costs, you just do it because that's what it takes. And you've got to support your product because, you know, when you sell a product to a customer, a customer's got to get value from that product. And if they get more value from your product than they do your competitors, then that's what sets you up for a, a successful business. And I know, you know, many machines we sold for, you know, 50% price premiums over our competition. At Henderson Mine in the US, where we shipped, we exported our first machine overseas to Henderson. You know, they had 40 machines there producing 38,000 tonne a day of molybdenum. In the finish, we replaced that fleet with 10 machines and increased their production. Now, if you think about the massive infrastructure and cost that they saved, now it was just a, it, it was a mine built for our machines. You know, the, mach the machines in the finish were cycling every minute. They were basically pulling from a draw point in a block cave mine and putting the material down in all parts. So fast hydraulics and machines, a transmission that shifts on the go, th those things become really critical in, in those environments. And, you know, it's the first time where I saw hot seat changes of operators. You know, where an operator after two hours was fatigued to the point they had to come out of the loader and put somebody in to keep up the productivity. I'd imagine you've had or have many apprentices over the years. What values do you try to instill into them? You know, they're, they're young people that are, um, you know, between usually 16 and 20. Um, sometimes they're a little older these days, but you ask them, how do they choose where they do business? Now, for a start, they say, well, we, we don't do business. Well, I say, well, where do you get your haircut? Yeah, where do you go to buy fuel? Where do you go to, to buy a meal? How do you choose that? And, you know, then I set about writing up on a board as many things as they give you before they get to price. And my aim usually is to get to seven items before a young person without much means of income talks about price being the reason that they choose where to do business. It's always reputation, it's word of mouth from somebody else, it's a good place to eat, or you know they have the best ones of these or something, before somebody finally says, oh, well, price is a consideration. But even with young people with not a lot of means, all of these things are fundamentally important to how you make a decision of where to go do business. And they're the fundamental rules of anybody in any business. If you then serve your customers well and, and meet all of those needs, and it's not about price. We think about building the best product. What do our customers really want? And what are our customers willing to pay for? And we build that and what it costs is what it costs. Now, I'm not saying that we don't spend a lot of time 
on efficiency gains and driving costs down. When we first started to build buses, I mean, the first bus probably got 2,500 hours. The next couple took 2,000. Today, we're building buses in under 1,000 hours, and we'll get it to 900. Now, you know, it's taken us 40 or 50 buses to get there, but every day is about driving waste out of your business and and being more efficient at what you're doing. Reduce the process, shorten the process. It's pretty much ingrained in our people. We have a training facility in town here, which we call our SWE, which is simulated work environment, where we take 17 people with five instructors and run a three-day course on lean principles in business. When people come out of that course, they understand and we see people can run 30 minutes on that production line and get one or two cabs put together properly. The aim is at the end of that process, they get 30 cabs in 30 minutes, every one of them spot on. And most of those groups of 17 people achieve the 30 cabs. And it's a great team building exercise, but it doesn't matter whether you're an accountant shuffling paper and or you work in a hospital or a council or you're manufacturing on our manufacturing line, it's their processes, and you can pretty much distill everything down to a process. And if you can eliminate steps in that process or shorten steps and make it more efficient, then you can usually increase the efficiency and reduce the cost. How long did it take you to get to that point? Obviously, when you first started building in the early days, when you, I don't know, started with <laughs> six people to 20 people to 50 people, because I looked at your photos on the wall there and I'm seeing 50th, uh, <laughs> 2800 or yeah. yeah so obviously there was a, a lot there in the meantime where you probably would have been cooking man hours but learning a lot yourself as well yeah we were and but we had we had pretty good people with with the natural instinct and you got to remember that back then we didn't have the benefit of having a caterpillar being town and trained people but we got to visit cat facilities pretty regular and caterpillar were very accommodating in helping us do things more efficiently. So we learnt a lot about things. I had a guy at a Caterpillar factory once say to me, I must have been talking to him about cost. And I must have been talking about trying to get 5% out of something. And he's an older guy again, and he said to me, son, if you want to get cost out of a product, tell your people you need to get 25% out and you'll probably get 30. Because when you talk about getting 5% out, people will nip around the edges and you might get three. When you say 25%, everybody will say, wow, we'll have to do it differently. And you open people's minds up to think about things differently, and that's where you get the massive change. That's where you get costs that come in half. If you give people the scope to go and do things differently, then you get a different outcome. The 1300 is a great machine. What happened internally to get the cost of production down? The R1300 was a particular challenge for us. Like, we was used to building big machines, and all of a sudden, the last machine we designed was a small machine. And you know, what we found is it was taking as many hours as a 2900 to build. But, but the, the price you get for it in the field that you can command is nowhere near that. So when we started to ship 1300s, we were sending a 25% check with each machine. So we were losing 25% per product. And I said to our people, you know, we've got to find a way to take at least 30% out of this product. We have to find a way to build this machine with all the modern technology in it that we need and still get the cost out. And to those team of people's credit, 
they went away, and now we didn't get it all at once, but that machine had electronics on it. In fact, what we found out of that, we could do things electronically cheaper than we could mechanically. And basically, like, you know, frame, you know, I remember a frame having 160 separate plates in it when they finished it at 80 something. So they're, you know, 80 less welds, they're 80 less pieces of plate to handle. And the frame basically looked the same, but people pressed plates and just did things differently. So that R1300, believe it or not, become one of the more profitable machines that we've built. And it's still to this day, you know, one of the leading machines for Caterpillar. So it just demonstrates what you need to do. I remember once saying to uh, Don Fites, who was the chairman of Caterpillar, we're having trouble competing in South America. And he turned around to me and said, son, if you can't compete everywhere, you can't compete anywhere. If there is somebody in this world that can do it cheaper and better than you, then pretty soon they'll have your business. So you work out how to go and get that done. And, you know, they're things that stick with you forever because I've never forgotten that. And, and I think about it every day. We have to be the low cost producer and have the best products. And, and otherwise, no other way to be successful in business. I don't know what drives you. It's, it's, you know, if you enjoy what you do, I think that's, and you have a passion for what you do, but the other critical element is good people. We've always had a team of fantastic people that's been equally as committed and have got the job done, and, and it's no different today. I mean, today, across the nine businesses that we run, we've got 2,700 people, and, you know, whether they're overseas or here in Australia, they're passionate about what they do. And I, I get a buzz out of seeing particularly what young people can do if you give them opportunity. Especially keen young people, they develop, they're smart, they think quickly. And I've been amazed over the years that, you know, I get accused a bit of throwing young people in the deep end. <laughs> and, and I think as long as you're there to support them, if they happen to go under the water, um, that's good. But what I've seen, you know, our people achieve over the years is nothing short of fantastic. So it's really a, a great group of people that get things done. One person doesn't do a lot on their own. Elfenstone is a family business. Kelly and Adam are involved now. How did that all unfold? I think Adam and Kelly probably started working in the business when they were 11, and, 11 to 12. And, and what they started doing was actually washing cars. We had a we had a deal with employees' kids if they wanted to come wash cars on Saturday morning, they got five bucks a car and they washed all the company vehicles. And so Kelly and Adam both had their turn at that. And I've got to say, I've got a lot of admiration for Kelly and Adam because they started, Adam served an apprenticeship. And when Kelly left school, she started in the mailroom and she worked her way to being a secretary. Kelly went back and did a, a marketing degree in university. And Adam served his apprenticeship and then has worked through the system. But, you know, today they're, you know, Kelly's 40 and Adam's 38, but they've both worked in the business for more than 20 years. In fact, Adam's gone now 25 years. So they're an integral part of the business because I'm, I'm a great believer in generational businesses, but it's not easy. A lot of people don't get that right. We started when I was 60, I'm 68 now, on a 10-year continuity program, not just for our family, but for our management group. You know, back in 1960, we had 14 businesses and the managers and, and your succession plan for your family has got to work together. 
I treat our senior guys as family. And so I said to the, a lady out of the US from Banyan um, runs the program for us. And I said to her when she come on board, this is not just about a continuity plan for a cat dealership. This is about a continuity plan for numerous businesses, the management group in those businesses and our family working together. And I've got to say, she's done a great job of helping coach us through that. It's not always easy. And, you know, time will tell whether we've been successful or not. And my plan is by the time I'm 70, I want to be the non-executive chairman and working less. I mean, up until six months ago, I reckon I've worked 100 hours a week average for pretty much all my life. And I'm starting to slow down now. I've had a bit of a bump in the road with health. That's something you've got to, you know, put at the forefront. You think you're bulletproof. <laughs> and along life's road, you learn that you're not really. You're just human. So I've had to give some other things some priorities. But, you know, so I've had to slow down a bit. Um, but, but, but I can't. I mean, I relax at work. When you, when you work in businesses with people where you enjoy what you do and get enormous satisfaction out of it, it's like fun. So people often ask me what my hobby is. And, and I do have hobbies, but my hobby is my work. And thank goodness. Um, and I've been very, very fortunate to have a partner in Cheryl that's been by my side the whole journey and understands the business, is supportive. She's got to be the most patient person in the world. Um, and I think that's essential. If you're going to do what we've done and build a successful business, um, you've got to have a... Uh, a, a partner that stands by his side through thick and thin and no matter what happens. Home is, is we're born, brought up, spend the majority of life. And I don't reckon there's a time, and, and I reckon there's thousands of times I've gone across that stretch of water on a plane, but there's not one time, if I'm away one day, I look forward to come back to Tassie. Sometimes I have people ask me, Christ, you've got all your head offices of businesses in Melbourne, why don't you live in Melbourne? And I usually answer it like this. When I leave Clayton, which is the head office of our cat dealership on a Friday night, I leave there probably at 4.30. And if I'm lucky, I get the flight at seven. And you fight the traffic all the way. You go through a crowded airport, security. And when I get off that flight in Wynyard, I walk across the driveway to where my car's been parked for free all week. And it takes me 15 minutes to drive home. And if I see six cars on the way home, I'd be lucky the environment we've got to live in is is pristine and you know the stretch of water has really protected us from a lot of things I mean there's a lot of people perhaps say that it's a handicap for Tasmania in business I think for us it's it's really kept a lot of issues away from our business we we have very few uh, issues industrially you know it's just a great environment to work in and I suppose also a real hobbies here I'm I've got about 1,100 acres of farmland and about 800 head of beef cattle. So, you know, over a weekend, <laughs> I usually <laughs> occupy myself working on the farm, um, or at least when I can. I've got a guy that manages the farm for me and a couple of guys that work for him. You know, I've grown up on a farm, I love it. It's, it's where you just, I can go and work on a farm physically at the weekend and it just regenerates you. What's your go-to machine on the farm? It's got to be a cat machine, doesn't it? Or not? Oh, I've got a cap, I've got a D4E on the farm and I just bought a, an eight-ton excavator, but 
Generally, we use contractors if we want to do work, but I don't. I rarely drive a machine. They're physical things like fencing or like because it's physical exercise, so you get a good workout doing it. And you know, I leave running the machine to others. I mean, I can and I do occasionally, um, but you know, gen generally I try to do physical things if I'm on the farm, work with cattle or that sort of stuff. The other thing about Taz, it's a great environment to bring up family. You know, it's, and again, that stretch of water keeps a lot of things away that, you know, I'm not saying that Tassie don't have its share of problems, uh, but we tend to be shielded from a lot of things. Um, I suppose for you, when you when you sort of step down to go from executive director or to <laughs> non-executive, how much more of that will you be involved in or will you just take a back seat? And well, it, you know, over the last eight and a half years, I've gradually been... You know, uh, we've, we run the business with a, um, an advisory board um, that sits here and the senior guys, are out, most of the guys that are on that board are out of our, they're, they're managing directors or key people out of the business. Kelly and Adam are on that board. So we each sit on every one of those boards. Yeah. Um, now it used to be 14, we've shared a, a number of businesses over the years, um, but you know, I used to basically sit on all of them and I've gradually stepped back from that. I don't chair, well, I chair the, the advisory board and our Elphinstone business board, but not any of the others. I'm still on a couple of the boards, but we've now gradually got people on those boards that are running those companies and that's how it has to be. You have to move that. And Kelly and Adam are now heavily involved in that. Adam has just been added to the sales and service agreement with Caterpillar, which is a pretty major milestone for us because that's not a given. In the Caterpillar world, if, if your family are not up to Caterpillar standards to be a cat dealer, you get to sell your cat dealership. Um, and, you know, not a lot of people know this, but a Caterpillar dealership is cancelled, that agreement between us and Caterpillar is cancelled in 90 days without cause by either of us. So when you think about the hundreds of millions of dollars that are invested in cat dealerships, they're invested in those dealerships because we want to be together. And that's the best way to have a relationship is, is that you're not forced to be together. You want to be together because it's good business to be together. So when it comes time to the next generation in a cat dealership, Caterpillar Vet, and I'm talking about heavily the next dealer principle because you have to meet Caterpillar's expectations um, and that's not for 10 minutes. They expect you to be a good Caterpillar dealer for 30 or 40 years. So fortunately, Adam has now been added to the deal agreement. So he's a joint dealer principal with me now. And I'll gradually hand that over to Adam in the next couple of years. Um, so we're in a handover phase with that now. And Adam basically sits at the top of our group of Caterpillar companies. And Kelly basically sits in the head of the balance of the businesses. So... That's essentially how we've set this up over a long period of time. So we'll gradually transition to those and hopefully we'll be successful. I've got great admiration for families that can pass businesses from generation to generation. I think it says a lot about the family. Dale, how does the future look like for the Elphinstone Group? So today we've got about 300 employees. So it's been a very rapid increase from 50 in 2016. Our daughter Kelly runs our manufacturing business 
and she's got a tiger by the tail. <laughs> We've got a fantastic group of people and we're achieving what we want to achieve. Um, I can't say that it hasn't been a bit rough around the edges, but it's bringing to life again um, the underground business in Burnie, which we're pretty proud of. And it certainly provides a lot of economic benefit for this area, provides a lot of people with employment. And if you think about the downstream employment, even if you take a two or three to one multiplier, it's providing a thousand jobs in this region, which is pretty jolly important. The new R700K is an absolute standout machine. I mean, the latest AD60 is a pretty damn good truck and will now compete with the other trucks. I think we lost our way for a bit. So I've got great faith in, in where Caterpillar's going. I mean, we move away from underground mining. The next-gen excavator, excavator that we've just released, you know, that really is a head and shoulders above other excavators. Now, they'll catch up, but... I think with the resources Caterpillar's now putting into the underground business, you know, I'm not concerned about where we'll be in a few years' time, whether it's battery electric, you know, the tier four machines now. We just started a bit late, but, but we'll keep the other guys pretty honest, I think. We're here to talk about the Mining Legends project. We've taken a used 2900 loader, which, by the way, you and your team originally designed all those years ago. We've had it rebuilt by over 80 donors, now, I think the Mining Legends project pretty much sums up yourself and all of our donors. Now, once sold, the profits are going back into our local mining community. Tell us about the background of the 2900 and how does it make you feel to have that machine involved in our project? We are particularly proud of you guys for pulling this on and doing it, especially on a 2900. The 2900 was developed in 1994 um, as a, I guess, a next machine from the 2800 and that 2900 believe it or not has been the war horse in the industry and i'm talking about globally if you want a production loader even today even though its technology is perhaps dated that machine is probably the most productive and reliable machine still in the market day as a production machine and we were particularly pleased to be able to work with westrack to provide you with an engine for it and you know, I think it's it's testament to the industry, the support of everybody getting together to do this. I think it's a great concept and way to raise money. Um, it gets a lot of people involved. And when you finish it, you've got something material that, uh, that gets another life. That machine will always be known then as the machine that raised funds and done a lot for, I guess, the legacy of the mining industry, which which I think is fantastic. So Westrack and ourselves are particularly pleased to have been involved in that. The mining industry put us where we are. And if you go back over the years of the mining companies that's put their faith in us, and you know, when I look at some of the high risk um, of, of mining companies that have chosen to invest with us without much experience or um, what we're doing, we've, we, we owe the mining industry a lot. And I think what you're doing to help, you know, people in the mining industry is great. Dale, any other final thoughts on the Mining Legends project? I think the initiative that you've taken to rebuild this 2900 for the benefit of, of the um, mining industries or those in need in the mining industry is a really great thing to do. And I think it's great to see all of the people that have um, chipped in 
to make this possible, whether they are the cat dealers or the suppliers of everything and anything that have gone into this product. It just shows the community uh, support and the goodwill that's in the community. The mining industry have done a tremendous amount for this country and, and we're still very dependent on the exports of our commodities. So it's a very important part of the fabric of our communities. And to see you guys doing what you're doing to support that and keep that nurtured, it's a credit to you and, and we thank you for that. And thank all of the other people that's contributed. So, Michael, just describe being in the same room as him and conducting this, this interview style. Uh, yeah, I actually really enjoyed it. I didn't have to do a great deal, as you said. Uh, basically went there and, and Dale's story. I'm assuming that he's told plenty of apprentices over the time as to how he got started, and, and I'm assuming that he's done a few of these things. But he did tell me that he's never done a sit-down interview like this but he definitely had plenty to say and uh, was well-versed because he just knows the story back to front. The Crib Room series of podcasts are produced by Industry Link Media. Subscribe to podcasts via your audio platform and via industrylinkmedia.com. This is a Crib Room podcast.